0: Hello and welcome to BB on the Record, this podcast from British Bandsmen. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsmen and it's great to have you on board. In this episode, I chat to Ross Knight, principal tuba with the Orchestre de la Suisse Romande in Geneva. You may remember Ross as a previous winner of what was then the BBC Radio 2 Young Brass Award, now run by Brass Pass. In fact, Ross, who grew up playing with the Carnoustian District Youth Brass Band, alongside the likes of Cory Band's Ailsa Russell and bass trombonist Josiah Walters, has won a whole host of prestigious prizes in his successful career so far. But what does a professional musician, who's used to performing at the elite level to packed concert halls, do during lockdown?
1: It's kind of a luxury for professional musicians who have jobs this now where we can choose if we want to have a break for a while, if we want to keep playing through. Because right this now we don't have so much that we're aiming towards. It's like, so we fight, we have to make our own goals and stuff like that this now. So right this now I've bought a load of recording equipment and I'm trying, I've got a few things in the pipeline, which is just keeping me on my toes so that I don't get stagnant, which is really important, right? Just now, for, I think for every musician, that we don't just stop. Uh, I took a break for a couple of weeks at the start just to get my head in the right place again. When you're working all the time in the orchestra, it's great, but there are things that, there, uh, the job is amazing, but there are things that frustrate you. So getting away from it just for a week or two is always bliss as well. It's, it's fantastic sitting there and playing music, and, but it's been nice to have that time. But now it's like getting back down to hopefully getting back to playing some small projects with um, small with the smaller groups in the orchestra, which is exciting. So now I have goals to work towards again. So I need to get back into shape and projects we're looking at. It looks like we're going to be small ensembles. So I'm, we're looking at quintet uh, trombone ensemble with tuba instead of bass trombone, for example.
0: So is this looking towards events where you might be able to um, work physically with other musicians albeit taking care of yourselves and in small groups and so on and so forth.
1: Exactly, that's it. The, the, The orchestra's obviously trying to find projects all the time for us to do to get us back on the road because at the same time, we're very lucky that we're still being paid, which is great. A lot of people aren't in such a nice position just now, especially in Britain, the freelancers, et cetera. And, I, and I, I wish that everybody could be in the same position, but it's just not how it is. They're trying as quickly as possible to get us back in, earning our money effectively, which uh, I, I don't know exactly what the plan is, but we're they're hoping to get us in and around Geneva in public open spaces where people can social distance and watch small groups from the orchestra play and also around the kind of Romandia area, Switzerland. And as far as Lausanne maybe, maybe further, I don't know. So I think it will be kind of like on a big truck, big open site truck with us social distancing on the stage. People can come, stay with their families, whatever, and just have a listen in public, which is nice.
0: It sounds fantastic and very, very encouraging, I'm sure, for you and for people who'll be hoping to listen to you again soon. Looking at your wider career with the Orchestra de la how are you enjoying life with the orchestra?
1: Uh, It's wonderful, really. It's really the dream come true. It's the dream that every musician wants to be make make fantastic music, but also progress. And I mean, in in the 21st century now, it's not just the music that's changing, it's the platforms, especially in a time like this now when we're in the lockdown, trying to find different ways to get on the map, if you like. So social media is such a big thing now. And uh, it's really interesting. And the job is always, always exciting that way. We have to find really interesting things to do, I just wish that my French was a bit better to be really at the forefront of this kind of thing.
0: When you were studying and and training to become a professional musician, did you always expect that you might have to move if the right opportunity came about? Because, of course, you grew up in Scotland.
1: My dreams and goals have changed as life has gone on. They've always gotten bigger. My dreams have always gotten bigger as it's gone on. I I started off wanting to study in Scotland, then heard about London, I mean, you and I met in the National Youth Brass Band of Scotland as Brass Band was my life then, you know, everything was about that. And then I realized there's an even bigger world in our tiny little Brass Band world. The brass play, amazingly in Britain, the brass play, all the players are almost all Brass Banders as well, which is really exciting. So it never really changes the social side of it. I I always knew that I probably would have to look elsewhere. And the reality of the tuba world hit me quite quickly when I realized there are maybe only 16 jobs maybe more, maybe less now in Britain. And they're all filled. They are all they all have people in it. And it's not, I don't mean to discourage, but it is the reality of it that we need to start looking abroad. Germany has around 100 orchestras or, or more, I think even, that have places for tuba. And that was kind of my calling and my motivation to learn the right instruments, get out there and try it. And then I want a job in Switzerland and it's a beautiful place. It's really exciting and... I've got my own little um, group of Scots out here as well, which I play, I play football with, and it's, uh keeps me sane as well on the other side of it, which is great.
0: I tell you what, why don't we rewind a little bit now? Can you tell me about your early musical life? How did it all begin?
1: I started playing when I was nine, um, directly on tuba, of all things. Um, I was quite a big nine-year-old, so... Uh, And I have a a big mouth, as you can probably hear from (laughs) this interview already. Yeah, I I started straight in uh, on tuba, And we we started quite a a small brass group quite early on. I was maybe 11 years old, so it was called the Brass Bandits. And it got us, we had a kind of nucleus of um, players in Carnoustie that started growing quite fast. It includes like Ailsa Russell, who plays with Corey. uh, Joe Walters, who's um, a bass trombonist. He's now got, I think, a 50% job out in... uh, the canary islands which is exciting myself some other players who don't play all the time anymore but we grew as this kind of nucleus and it's um it was really amazing and then came the district youth brass band out of that and we were kind of the principal players and like i say i grew up doing all this banding and we've got the softest there's a place in my heart that's the biggest for it because i still love it i still listen to it all the time it's, I take a lot of influence from it, a lot of influence from the players who play in brass bands. Just being able to play a tune beautifully, it's amazing how many orchestral players who are only orchestrally trained don't have that, the same heart that brass band musicians have of playing a hymn tune, for example. They can play anything, you know, they can fly around the instrument on the trumpet, but they can't play a hymn tune the way that you would hear from the principal cornet of the top band in the world or something like that, you know. So it's really, it's, that was a great way to learn and to grow up. I mean, I I don't get to do enough anymore of brass banding. I do miss it.
0: Looking at those earlier years, Michael Robertson may or may not be a, a name that's familiar to listeners of this podcast, but in Scotland, of course, he's renowned for nurturing generations of brass players who've gone on to enjoy really successful careers. What was it about his teaching or playing under his baton that really helped you in those formative years?
1: M- Mike has just—he's got everything that you need to motivate young players. He was never too forced. He never wanted to. He never pushed you too hard. But he always had, there's like a hand on your back the whole time, pushing you along at your speed that you needed to. Because I mean, I think everybody goes through the stage in your development where you get lazy. I think I was around thirteen or fourteen, the beginning of my teenage years, where I, I even I lost not not love for it, but I, I kind of hit the hit a plateau for a while. And I, I think everybody who's listening hopefully will actually realise that we go through that stage. And Mike kept encouraging the whole time. He was, he was great in front of the band as well. Strict, but also nurturing. He, he always gave us the opportunities. And he, yeah, I mean, he was always there. He, a big thing that, we, that I, I can think of from his teaching was that he played the piano as well. So he used to accompany us a lot, almost every lesson he'd play with us as well. And we learned so early on how to play as an ensemble, whether it's one, two people, three people, whatever. And I have a lot to uh, to thank him for the fact that he was such a good accompanist. Uh, from the age of eight, nine years old, when you start playing, to when you go off to music college, he, he had everything. And that was He still does, obviously. He's not teaching as much anymore. It was brilliant. And I think everybody who was taught by him would agree with me.
0: During those school days you've already touched upon the fact that you were playing alongside people like Ilsa Russell, the solo hornet Cory band now, uh Josiah Walters, fantastic professional bass trombone player, siblings Ian, Callum and Hayley Tonner, who are all pursuing careers in music and there have been plenty more. What on earth were they feeding you?
1: <laughs> I tell you what, um this is we were just speaking about. Mike was the uh, I suppose what the driving force there when we and also our parents, our parents were a huge, huge factor. My dad, especially, he was really, really. He helped to run these small groups and stuff. like that. And then later on, when other groups were forming as well, other parents were always there backing us. My dad was one of the brains behind the idea of the Carthusian District Youth Brass Band and getting this going. And along with Anne Ness, who was the solo cornet of our brass band, etc., and she ran the junior band. So there was always this feeding all constantly into several different bands. Like I say, we had these small groups all the time and if any if any young people are listening, find a quartet, a quintet, seven people, eight people, even if it's like ten people playing a five part piece, get in these small groups and you'll develop really, really quickly. And that's what we did and that's how we learned how to play uh well together and very, very quickly as well. And we like I say, this nucleus kind of took the forefront of the of the development and it was really, really exciting.
0: Many a happy summer was also spent at the National Youth Brass Band of Scotland, the course is then taking place in St Andrews. How big a role did that play in your development?
1: NIBS is one of the biggest driving forces uh, for young brass players in Scotland. I suppose it's the highlight of, the, of our brass banding year when you get to that summer. and I started there when I was 11 i think yeah 11 years old i did the youth band and then when i was 12 i was already in the senior band which i think i was the youngest person that year i remember um graham and robert fraser the two e flats of uh whitburn band they were like uh, must have been between seven and ten years older than me and they were like my big brothers and they still are now you know every time i see them it's it's like going back to those first days of nids when they took me under their wing i was like Probably about a quarter of the height I am now or something like that, walking into the room and having these big old boys looking after me, basically. And they were really, really, I mean, those days were so special. Like, and you learn so fast on these courses. It's only a week long and it's just, it flies by in a moment, but you learn so much. You learn like a year's worth of experience in that one week. It's amazing.
0: For anyone listening, whether they've been involved in NIBS or the National Youth Band of Great Britain or whatever it might be, it often involves working under inspirational conductors and of course at NIBS for so many years. Richard Evans was at the helm and there were guests who would come in from uh, one year to the next. Um, What sort of influence did they have?
1: Huge. Um, Richard Evans is just, he's monstrous. Working with him was really always so exciting. His charisma is next to none. I don't think there's anybody that can Hold, a, hold an audience like Richard can. It was just wonderful working with him. And he he knows everybody. He's always interested in what you're doing. That kind of love for everybody around him is really infectious. And it helps people progress. And it was really exciting. And all the tutors that were there, I, mean, I had a conversation with Craig Anderson. Craig was my first tutor in Nibs. And I had a conversation with him just last week, and you know, and like I say, I was twelve when I first met him, and it's amazing that now fifteen years later that we can sit down and have a beer and reminisce about these times and stuff. And he was brilliant. And then later on, I came back one year after I started. my, I did went to the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. I came back, and it was Les Nish who'd taken over the seat as well. It was great, great to get to know him and work with Les as well. And again, Les is a friend of mine now that I really look up to and. He inspires me a lot with his solo playing and uh, it's, it's really exciting to watch and listen to him play as well. I mean, when you've got these people around you, whichever instrument, you can't help but just be in awe-inspired and want to learn more. I mean, I think you might even remember, Mark, that it was uh, John Barber sitting down at the piano one year yes, and doing these shout-out-the-tune-and-I'll-play-it and it was just, I mean, I, I still remember that like so, so clearly in my head and it was just amazing just watching these fantastic musicians just sitting up there and teaching us and learning from It's just it's the best thing ever really
0: do you know that memory of John came back into my head recently when I saw him some posting some videos on social media it reminded me of the fantastic talent that he is Ross there have been so many awards for you including that when in the BBC Radio 2 Young Brass Award how did that perhaps open new doors for you
1: well, the good thing about that was is that it kind of opened my my eyes and obviously the doors to a, a small a small uh, solo career, if you like. Uh, Two solo careers are not very big. You have to do so many things on the side, so. But it, it showed me how to stand in front of a band. I had people around me while I was doing that competition saying, think about this, think about that. This is the type of thing you should be doing. At that moment in this piece, this is how you should play it because of this and that reason. We'd all played solos in front of the band, especially in we'd, we'd all stood up there and done it. But then finding that little bit extra to push you right to the forefront. It's finding those things. And so I, last year I did the Aeolus competition, which is the, I think it's called like the champion of wins. I can't remember the exact translation of this competition. And I came second in the competition overall, which was that's the highest achievement that I've had as a soloist now. And I owe that back to doing likes of the BBC competition, which for that age group is probably the highest Prize that you can get for a young brass player. Learning to stand up in front of a brass band and to perform. And then I got to play with Grindthorpe after that, and I played the BBC Concert Orchestra after that as soloist. And again, meeting people all along the way. And even through just doing that one concert with Grindthorpe, I went back several, several times to go and play with the band as a guest. Then we'd step up to first for Sean Crowther. I would play second. I think the very first one I even did, I was playing principal B-flat bass of all things. I was like, well, you know, they just literally called me the, like, the week before and said, well, my B-flat isn't there, can you come? I didn't even have the right mouthpiece. I brought a, a mouthpiece too, way too small for the instrument and everything. I was oh my God, and it's crazy. But I kept going back to play there quite a lot, and I loved those times. It was really great. And that, like, these things opened doors, like playing that competition. People heard me. They got to know me and stuff like that. And it's really, that's how careers are built, basically, is a lot of this on who you know.
0: You chose to pursue studies in London at the Royal Academy of Music and there were studies in Germany and you were part of the Karian Academy of the Berlin Philharmonic. Since then, as we know, you've gone on to perform with so many wonderful orchestras. Do you ever just take a moment, perhaps when you walk in, sit down in the back row with the brass section and quietly say to yourself, I've actually done rather well here? <laughs>
1: I'm very, very thankful for what I've been able to do, but it's also come with a lot of hard work. That's one of the main things as well, is that I've really put in a lot of effort. When I was in the Carrion Academy, I locked myself in a room for about six months practicing. There's this gold book of orchestral excerpts that we have for uh, doing auditions. And I just learned a book basically for about six months, and I was doing between three and six hours of practice a day, just on almost just on orchestral excerpts, on the von Williams first movement of uh, the Vaughan Williams Concerto first movement, just so that I could do auditions, because at the end of the day, uh, that's what pays your bills, is if you can play these things and go into any orchestra and play them. So I learned how to do them, and I won a job very quickly after joining the Carrion Academy. Um, like I say, six months, into there I had won a job and had to leave after nine months instead of two years. So I still love going back to London and Britain to play with orchestras because of the the level of professionalism and especially the sight reading. It really keeps you on your toes. I mean, I, we did a concert. I was playing with the Philharmonia for a few weeks in London and we came back from tour of doing Bruckner 7, went in, did a quick rehearsal of uh, Bruckner 6 and did a concert the next day, which obviously when you're out here... In mainland Europe, it's a much slower process where you have a whole week to rehearse and do two concerts in the same program instead of playing three or four different concerts in the same week in Britain. So that's uh, really exciting. But the the training in London that I got, managed let me have this ability to be able to play like that, to be able to come back and do this, learn how to sight read. And I was really bad at it at first. My quintet almost kicked me out because of a gig that we did where I just had no <laughs> idea where I was. That, and I still playing at that quintet now, so that's how quickly I had to learn how to side read, basically. Yeah, and then going to Germany, realising it's a much slower pace, it's also a good thing. You have time to work on yourself. And I mean that mentally and as a player as well.
0: Ross, that now brings us to your piece of the podcast, where we listen to a piece of your choosing that means rather a great deal to you. Just before you reveal what it is, why have you chosen this piece of music?
1: I played this piece of music several years ago while I was in London. I think just with an amateur group put together. I can't even remember the situation that it was now, but it stuck with me so well because I just loved every single minute of playing this piece. And the composer is such... Um, I mean, he writes fantastic music, not just brass music, but music in general. Beautiful music for opera, for orchestra, for brass, everything. It's a shame he didn't write anything for brass band. Otherwise, I think it would be used all the time. This particular recording, which um, I love, it's just the players playing on it and stuff like that, especially the trumpets are just stonking. But the standard of playing and the musicality is just what makes this piece such a really outstanding piece for me. For brass.
0: Well, Ross, you have us all in suspense, so please reveal your piece of the podcast. The piece of the podcast
1: is uh, Festmusik der Stadt Wien by Richard Strauss, played by the Locke Brass Consort. <laughs>
0: Brass consort performing Richard Strauss' Music, der Stadtwien, Ross Knight's piece of the podcast. Ross, part of life for an orchestral musician is the audition and trial process, and that trial could see a musician work with an ensemble for an extended period of time, and they may or may not ultimately be appointed to the vacant position. What is it like to endure that process of being a musician on trial?
1: It's the most exciting and stressful moment of a musician's life. I was very lucky here in Geneva with mine that my trial went very smoothly. I had a lot of repertoire to cover and a lot of solo repertoire—not solo solo repertoire, but like repertoire with tuba solos in it. Uh, for example, Mahler's First Symphony on tour. Which, I'm going to be completely honest, it's quite difficult when you're on your trial and you're going out after every concert and having a couple of beers. You know what a couple of beers means. Because there's, there's two sides to a trial. There's the playing incredibly, which you have to be able to do, otherwise you won't win. It. And then there's also the social side, which is making sure that you're also the most fun person that you can be and the most serious person you can be. And it's so many boxes you have to tick. In Britain, it's very different from the process uh, on the continent and in the rest of the world to me. Britain's quite unique, where they take several people on trial and you get a week here, a week there, a month here, a month there later on. And I've done both now. I was on trial for the London Symphony Orchestra for a good year and a half. I think I got to the very last uh, stages of it. And then Ben Thompson was given the job. So I know how it feels to not get the job as well after being on trial. It's it's painful, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's fair because in that situation, there are just uh, so many incredible players up for it. Whereas out here in Europe, you win the audition on the day and then you're given the year's trial. That's the hardest thing to do, but also it's the most rewarding as well because you know that you were the best person in that room on the day. Then you've got a year to prove that, which is uh, exciting as well. So like I say, I had a really intense trial year with a lot of repertoire, a lot of hard repertoire. Yeah and I was very lucky that everything went well. Again down to hard work but also down to just a of natu- good natural bond with my colleagues from the start. Sometimes when trials don't work for people it's not necessarily to do with them or they're playing. It can just be that it just doesn't work. Maybe there's someone in the section that's not very nice which often isn't the case but It can happen it can be anything like that it could just be that the chemistry is not right luckily they were okay with the fact i didn't speak french and i still am pretty terrible at it but i am taking lessons but it does make a difference if you can speak the language as well and that helps and i very quickly learned how to deal with rehearsals etc in french so that helped too
0: everything you've achieved so far in your professional career has its roots if we go back far enough to the brass band world Uh, and we know that it's a wonderful breeding ground for so many fantastic professional musicians. But is there anything you think the brass band world perhaps needs to change about itself? Perhaps this period of lockdown could offer a chance to pause for breath and take stock and maybe change course slightly?
1: Yes and no. I mean, I I remember um, overhearing someone say once while listening to a person playing trumpet, it was at the European's, one year, and they were playing his trumpet soloist with the brass band. And I was sitting there and oh, I love this person. I think that he's a fantastic, fantastic trumpet player. And he was playing some really difficult music some and playing it very, very well. Someone in front of me just saying, I, I hate the trumpet, it sounds, it's just not a cornet. I think we need to be a little bit more relaxed sometimes with our opinion on these types of things. And I wasn't so much hurt by this comment, but I was a bit disappointed that that was the kind of mindset of this person. Um, And I know that happens a bit and I've heard audience members as well hearing, for example, a a horn player playing a, a cello concerto, for example, and they can play it. I mean, they play it just as well as a cello player can. And the audience members say, oh, it's so much better than the cello. Why do they, why do they bother playing the cello, et cetera? You know, why is this? It's like, there are so many different... The brass band is great because it gives you so many different colors. You have the ability to be a woodland section, a brass section, a string section, whereas most other ensembles can't do this. We, Like I said earlier, it's a very small world, the brass world, and... To open up our eyes to something slightly outside is, is very important. And most of the, the great conductors in brass band worlds, they take their influences from these places. And the best players in the brass bands as well, the people who get the positions and progress the most, are the people that aren't stuck in this little world. Like I say, the, the world of orchestral is not much bigger, really. I mean, it's, it's amazing how many people you bump into that you know even you're just walking down the street somewhere in a random city. People need to open their minds to everything. I certainly try to do that. And from the age of maybe fourteen or fifteen, I started venturing into the orchestral world, and I didn't realise I was doing it. I was just some Mike Robertson said to me, "You can go and play with the Tayside Symphony Orchestra if you want." I went, "Yeah, I'd love to, because it's another thing to go and do." You know, that was my into the orchestral world, and I started hearing these different sounds, and and then later on, I did played in the National Youth Orchestra. I, I played at the European Union Youth Orchestra and the Gustav Mahler Youth Orchestra college. And it's the same thing. as sitting. It's like being in the same setting as the National Youth Brass Band or the National Youth Brass Band of Scotland, but you're with the best orchestral players from all over Europe. Being six weeks on tour with them, you end up with a family of players. Almost every single city in this in Europe, I have a place to stay now because of these people that I've met and got to know really, really well and made fantastic music with. I don't know these experiences. We we, we don't get them in brass band so much. We go to contests, and that's what everybody aims for all the all the time. I mean, Jim Watson was always, he tried to change this type of view when he was conducting Black Dyke. Obviously, the brass band contests are still the biggest part of everybody's year. But playing a concert, it can, should be just as rewarding as getting ready for a contest. Because not everybody wins it. There's only one band that wins it every time. And it's great. It's the best feeling in the world to win a contest. It's not the be-all and end-all. At the end of the day, someone's out there walking their dog while you're on stage there. Uh, The the great feeling that we get from playing brass bands, I think that we should also be mindful that people are coming to watch the concert for the same feeling that that you want to get on stage from playing in a brass band contest. So I think people need to realise that as well, that you are an end product of something at the same time as well that people want to enjoy.
0: So just finally then, Ross, is it fair to say young listeners, young musicians listening, or indeed anyone who's looking to continue their development in their musical life, Look, good music making is good music making, regardless of the ensemble or the type of group that is playing, and it's just about immersing yourself in as much as you possibly can, and listening, of course.
1: Yeah, I one hundred percent agree with you. You can get experience anywhere you go to listen. You'll always learn, whether it's good or bad. All my teachers I've had over the years, lessons I've had with people, I've always taken the best things from them, and I leave the stuff which I maybe don't like. Maybe it's not. It can be a goal to someone else, but it's not to me, so I don't take it. And that's the same thing. If you go to listen to a concert, it's like, okay, maybe I hated the oboe player today, but I love the trumpet. So I'm going to take. I want to try and make that sound or something like that. My while I was in the Carrion Academy, sitting beside Alexander von Klamer, the tuba player of the Berlin Phil, it became my influence. Basically, he was the one that influenced me to make the sound that I do. Over there, right just now, is my big B flat tuba. It's Melton 1197. Uh, It's a big handmade chuba, it's amazing. You know, he and I went to the factory and got this instrument built to my specifications and stuff like that. I sat there every single day trying to make my instrument sound like him. And I have my own influence on that as well, but he's one person I really, really wanted to sound like. So I got that idea in my head that people can go out and hear one person, one band, one orchestra, one singer, one flute player, one whatever a week. Not necessarily going out. I mean, right just now we're here. If you just go onto the YouTube, Spotify, YouTube, whatever, there's a million recordings. Learn how to be a great soloist, a great ensemble player, a great brass band player, anything. And uh, this is how this is how you learn, this is how you progress, and how you become a great musician.
0: That's it for this episode of BB on the Record. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can enjoy a digital subscription of British Bandsman. It costs just £42.99 for one year. Go to BritishBandsman.com and click on subscribe. Keep an eye out for British Bandsmen on Facebook and Twitter. That's a great way of keeping in touch with all the latest updates. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now.